Essendon winning their first flag since 10 years it's a part of who I am you know the football club's a part of my DNA it, it, it always will be um, it's a part of my family's DNA my my mum was a Collingwood supporter my dad was a Richmond supporter but you know, once I started playing they, they were all Essendon supporters that's that's what it means when you when you come to the football club you instantly feel like you're you're part of the family you're part of the fabric well Bomber fans what does Essendon mean to you that's what it means to Adam Ramanaskis, one of the most popular bombers in modern times. Welcome to a big episode of Working Through It. I'm Adam White, and you'll hear more from some of the, the great Essendon stars uh, across the journey in this week's show on just what the club means to them. And we'll also hear a few from uh, from those that are out there listening today as to what the bombers means to you. So we'll do that throughout the course of the show. Another special guest, probably the biggest one we've had almost, isn't it? It's going to be the captain of the Australian cricket team and Essendon fan, Tim Payne. He'll be our feature guest today. And a little bit later on, we're going to have a chat to someone that has been instrumental at uh, the Essendon Football Club uh, over the last couple of years, and that is Dave Reid. A few of you might not know about a lot about Dave, but uh, by the end of this episode, you certainly will. So it's a, a big show coming up, and uh, let's get straight to the stars of the show. Um, we'll start with Xavier Campbell, who is the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. And Xavier, a question for you straight up. What does Essendon mean to you? Yeah, thanks, Whitey. It's good to be back for another week. Um, I mean, it's Essendon. I've, it's always been in my family. I was sort of... Um, we uh, we grew up in the country, obviously, and um, my earliest mem- memory of going to the footy was with our next-door neighbour who was also an Essendon supporter and it took me to Windy Hill. I had to stand on a carton of beer for the day to watch my first game of footy. And it's just um, it's always just felt like, I think, as Ramos sort of described it, as part of the family. Like, it's 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 been all about rituals. It's been about um, sharing it with all of your family members. I've loved now bringing my son, Freddie, and daughter, Francesca, into the fold, choosing their number... Um, the richness of the stories of the past, like I've loved all of that. Um, so I've sort of, and it's been interesting, I, I never set out to be the CEO of the footy club. I think it's a real privilege and I'm lucky to be where, where I am now. But um, it's a real honour as well and maybe that probably helped me through, you know, certainly the, the tougher years when I first started as CEO because of that real passion and love for the footy club itself and knowing what the footy club stood for for so long before that and, and wanting and being desperate to get it back to, the, to that point. So... It's been an enormous amount to me. A second part of the trio uh, for working through it is James Hurd. When we talk about family, uh, we've pretty much got a fourth generation uh, bomber now at uh, at Essendon when it comes to the Hurd family. Uh, Hurdy, you've captained the club, you've coached the club, Brownlow medalist, premiership. If there was one thing that stood out, what does Essendon mean to you? Oh, definitely, I think the... The memories with my family, whether it be with my, my father and my grandfather as a child, you know, watching the football on TV or going to watch Essendon play, um, 
them with you know my own family with my my kids and my wife and uh being part of that Essendon um greater family and feeling very welcome as a, as a player and a, and a coach you know that was a, a very special time when you've got you know new wife young kids going to the games going to the functions and forming new friendships and and also being part of that the Essendon I suppose supporter base um when you're able to to walk and you're greatly loved and you know through the difficult times there's obviously a bit of a bit of sweet there you know memories of Essendon with what happened towards um towards the end of my coaching and what happened with the Asada stuff but the support that was given to to both myself my wife my kids by the majority of Essendon supporters was was quite um you know was tremendous really and just showed how how good and quality people that the Essendon supporter group are. Talking about uh, keeping in the family, uh, Joe Watson certainly falls into that category as well, watching his his dad, Tim, play so many times for the footy club. Uh, Joe, what do you reckon? What what, does, what do the Bombers mean to you? Yeah, oh, why do you... I mean, I, I guess I echo the sentiments of, of both Xavier and, and Herdy. It's, you know, for me, it was, you know, my childhood was growing up around the football club and, and watching dad play and, and the enjoyment that that provided and with myself and my sisters and, and the extended family and then being able to fulfil my, you know, dr- childhood dream and, and play at the footy club um, and see the enjoyment that um, that provided to the people that I care about. It um, it, it does feel very like a, very much like a, a family environment to me and, and I think that you see that with, um, you know, supporters and members and um, like the level of commitment and passion that people have for the football club, it, it, it is, you know, there's that tribal element about it. And that's why people are willing to, you know, sacrifice their time and, and fight financially to, to support the club because it has such a deep connection um, for them. And, and, it, and it provides something that um, is, is, feels like family to them. And, and I think that that, um, that is why, you know, football clubs are so special in, in our um, society and, and certainly is for me. We'll hear from uh, Dustin Fletcher, Terry Danaher, Simon Madden, Mark Harvey, just a, a few big-name uh, Essendon people about what the club means to them throughout the course of the show. But, uh, guys, it is over to you. Yeah, thanks, Whitey. I mean, uh, keen to talk to, to Xavier and Herdy about how things have gone this week. And um, I know personally I've just been uh, – you, know, you all know how – um, keen uh, viniculturalist dad is and, and uh, how his vines are going and the, and the grapes down at uh, Glen Maggie and the Fianos in the, is setting in the barrels. But I was very interested to see um, the Swan Valley setup that um, Kyle Hooker has over in, um, in Perth and the, the Hooker Shiraz. I don't know if you guys saw on the, uh, the TV the story about it, but um, it seems like he's been keeping himself very busy over there, Hooksy. He's been... Um, Pressing grapes and and uh, he looks like he's enjoying himself. Yeah, well, hopefully he hasn't been drinking uh, too much of that wine. <laughs> I think he. Oh, well, hopefully he hasn't either. Bit of a surprise that I was down having a kick of the footy down the oval and ran into one of our your ex teammates um, and one of the best blokes in football, Brent Stanton. Uh, Joe today had a good chat to Stance about everything he's doing at Carlton and and uh, it was good to chat to him and. And meet someone out of the blue. I think um, it's always good when you meet one of your ex-teammates or ex-players. He seems to be doing very well. Yeah, he's taken over. Um, I think he got promoted into to midfield. Is that right, Herdy? Um, That's right, yeah. the start of the season? Yeah. 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 So, uh, obviously, um, you know, Stance played 
um, a huge amount of his um, time through the midfield. And one of his biggest attributes was, you know, like his ability to, to run and gut run and push himself and, and read cues. And um, I think he started with the development role at Carlton has obviously blossomed and, and taken over a midfield role, which was great. It's great to see him, you know, imparting his knowledge and wisdom and what he, what he can add to, to players coming in the next generation. Absolutely. And Xavier, you've obviously had a big week with uh, return to play and, and, and football and when it's all happening. Maybe it'd be great to hear an update for, for Joe and I also supporters about you know, when football's coming back and what has to happen before uh, the players can come back to training, what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 it certainly feels like momentum's building now. I don't think it's a... It's, it's not quite there yet and I, I don't probably expect the AFL to come out until probably sometime next week, not necessarily the start of the week, but sometime next week uh, to make an announcement around what return to train, the timelines, the date and what return to play probably looks like. But we definitely, we're clearly now, we've got over the first hurdle. I mean, it was it was really pleasing for government to address that last week, last Friday, and talk about the different processes and um, platforms that we need to reach as individual states before we'll be able to get back to, to training. But I'd imagine... You know, I'd imagine we'll be back at training within the next fortnight and probably, you know, ability to play probably from sometime from, from mid-June onward, I'd, I'd imagine, based on, on everything we're sort of hearing. I think it's that there's a lot more complexity that needs to be worked through from a pro- the protocols, what return to play looks like, and just in terms of how training would be structured given the, the parameters around social distancing and things like that. I, I think it's probably complex in the fact that the AFL has to deal with all of the the various states, because um, some still have quarantines in place and others do not, and how a potential fly-in, fly-out model, which was probably something that I don't think was probably really seriously thought was a was a realistic option in the first to, to resume the season, now probably becomes a, a a much more realistic option now and perhaps even the preferred option of, of the league and many of the states. So it does feel like it's it's a, we've got some momentum now and sort of now we're all sort of as footy clubs are starting to plan our... You know, what our staffing is going to look like, um, our support models and everything else like that. So it does feel like, um, it feels exciting, actually. Xavier, in terms of, um, you know, you're hearing sort of commentary from different stakeholders in the game. Um, some play, some are saying, look, we, we should be able to come back and start training earlier because, you know, our state isn't in as severe a lockdown. Others, others are saying, look, it, it, we, we need to, to get games or can we push them back? Do you think that um, – is there a level, level of sort of ignorance into or frustration from your side as to how some of the other stakeholders are viewing the whole situation and the um, – I guess where the – how um, tedious or how difficult things are to actually manage and the, the lack of, I guess, planning that, that has gone on? Yeah, it's a good point. I, I think about it more broadly as a society. I mean, we've spoken about this at different points about the broader society viewpoint and not getting necessarily caught up in our bubble. Um, you know, I felt like we're very lucky to be, be working in this industry and we're, you know, we're very lucky um, as much as there's some challenges and, and clearly a lot of staff have been impacted to, to think that we could actually be back playing at some point in the next six to eight weeks when many other industries have, have probably got even greater challenges than that is something that we know we shouldn't um, forget either. And, I, you know, I, there's a lot, of, a lot of people talking about sort of, you know, is there a point in time where maybe we shouldn't come back and we should just write this year off or, 
you know, sort of things like that I just I struggle with because there is so much work that's going on behind the scenes to try and create a platform to come back. I think the game is very important to the people. Um, it's not more important than the medical protocols and all those sorts of things, n- n- not one bit. And that has to be has, has to dominate our thinking at any point in time when we start to look at return to play and we can't compromise the broader society objectives around managing COVID-19. But I still think it's an important game for so many people. And it's an important game for so many of the players and staff who, you know, it's their livelihood. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very important we get back to playing uh, for them as well, where we can and within those parameters that we've spoken about. So at times I do get frustrated with the commentary, but we are also in one of the most unique and complex periods that, you know, any of us have ever operated in when you, when you consider the pandemic impact. So it's sort of understandable, but I, I also think it's you know, more than ever we should be challenged to think outside the square, think outside our own little wheelhouse and truly understand the viewpoints of all the different stakeholders at the table. Joe, question for you um, around return to play. Xavier's talked comprehensive about you know off the field and what needs to happen as the, the, the three of us have been closest to playing how would you view the fact if you know you've been out of training with the team for seven or eight, six seven weeks the fact that they're going to give you three and a half weeks to come back I mean you, you used to take a little bit of time um, to maybe get yourself back in the in the game form but seriously you I mean you used to say I need a couple of games to get back in you know a few weeks of really hard training would you be able to do that in three or four weeks I think it, it, it would be – it's definitely going to be a challenge for, for the players, I think, and um, uh, you hear the, the commentary from the players themselves about the standard of what it's going to actually look like early on. It's going to be scrappy, and the expectations will probably be that, look, we're, we're going to take – it's going to take some time to find our feet because we're going through an unusual preparation. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, that will be something that will be um, – evident from early early games um i think it's going to take some time for players to get back into a routine physically um and mentally and um and three weeks is normally um is not long enough you know that's that's not um it's just it's very difficult to emulate the type of change of directions the speed um that you get from match simulation training and a lot of well no one's been able to to be able to get that so i think it's going to be difficult and i think that um you know the the standards of what we will see as a product is going to be something that is going to take a while um, before it actually looks like okay well this is what afl footy looks like to me and you'd have to think then xavier with the players not being able to get prepared properly that the, the injuries and the fact that you know your treatment of players your ability of players the club got a plan around you know perhaps extra injuries around making sure that they've that they're keeping players as fit as possible and you have got a fit list because it feels like it will be the uh battle of survival of the fittest um with the team that are you know more so than perhaps in other years yeah so the two parts of that and it's sort of further to what job's saying is that the afl's been really clear that yes it's a it's a three and a half to four week pre-season with an absolute minimum two weeks where uh, the restrictions are at level three. So ultimately saying there has to be a minimum of two weeks where players are allowed to have the contact piece at play. Because to Job's point, I mean, it's sort of even level two where you're allowed to train in groups of 10, you're still not doing it with physical pressure, not, not, not with physical contact. So it's sort of, I think that's another sort of nuance of the whole return to play piece that, that we sort of need to understand. I think, as we've sort of been saying to our players through Sean Murphy and the rest of the guys within the football department, is 
Um, it's hard for them to stay up the whole time. Like they've just finished a massive preseason. You two know better than anyone. You know the significant physical, emotional demands around preseason and the the emotional build up to round one, and then to think that that's then taken away after round one, and then you've got to go away and almost do another mini preseason is very difficult. So we've been very careful not to not to not to push the players to stay at such a high level that there's potentially a come down period. Um, it's been very much about maintaining a relevant base so that when you come back to training, you are ultimately putting yourself in the best position to then progress naturally from there and not get any injuries because that this next three or four week block is going to be you know, perhaps their most important pre-season that they will have done in a really short period of time. So it's, uh, it's particularly important they get that continuity in their training leading into what will be an early part of the season that's likely to have really short breaks and you know a lot of games in a really short period of time, which is which adds to that sort of nuance of the training piece. I think you'll find the clubs that have a and this is it's hard to quantify, but it'll be interesting to talk to Dave Reed about Essendon's perspective. But the, the the number of players who you have that are externally motivated, motivated by external factors, and need the environment, need the buzz, need everyone around them, need coach to train them as opposed to those athletes that you've got, you know, intrinsically motivated athletes who get out and train on their own and me- mentally are able to get through it themselves. The, you'll see a contrast in, in teams, I think, with the, the ones that can motivate themselves as opposed to the ones that have needed to have that external motivation around them. And, and the teams that have the majority of intrinsically motivated athletes, I think, will be uh, have a have a big, um, uh, I suppose, advantage over those that, that, that don't. Yeah, Hoodie, I wonder whether or not it's um, gonna. There's a correlation between you know age and experience um, because it is something that the, the longer you're in the system, the more you're able to run, you know, and, and you're able to get yourself ready to go, and you know what the expectations are, and you know how to go, and you know, like you look at the teams that finish, you know, up the the top, and someone say like Richmond, they've just got. There's a lot of players that you would look at, and they would. They, they're in the right age bracket. They've got a, a really stable group who have played a lot of footy together. And that's the other thing that um, you, you're missing. You're, there's actually missing games and that continuity of being able to play with each other um, where there's a huge amount of development that comes through just being on the ground, getting to, to know how each other's playing. So it's going to be it's – a, it's a good point where I think that there will be a, a wider gap Well, we might uh, just uh, leave it there for the moment. We've just uh, we've just lost Joe momentarily, but it actually isn't a bad time. We'll get Joe back because we are about to be joined by Tim Payne, the Australian Test captain and also a big Bomber fan. You're listening to Working Through It on this Wednesday afternoon. It's, it's, it's all for the people and you realise speaking to, to different people what it means to them whether it's you know 20 years ago you know 30 years ago or it's the last you know the last six months that uh, Messon have played so um, you know they pay their memberships and you know they've got the right to yell out and, and get stuck into it like um, most people do but um, for me it's all about you know those people that um, you know love the Essendon Footy Club and, and love the Bombers 
Dustin Fletcher, 400 games for Essendon. That's what the club means to him. And from sentimental favourites like Dustin to new content offerings, Don's Digital is keeping you engaged, enlightened and entertained during the break. Head to EssendonFC.com.au. Most of you would already be there at the moment listening to this to check it all out. I can tell you that Job is back. And it's important, Job, because uh, you are of uh, the three... You've got sort of some ins into the Australian cricket team, which you can explain a little bit more, because you've been in the inner sanctum, so I think it's appropriate that uh, you introduce our next guest. <laughs> Thanks, Whitey. Sorry for, for dropping out there. Um, I know I am looking forward to, to introducing our next guest and to having a chat with him um, about it, and I did. Uh, I did. I, I was able to get into the um, the Australian uh, locker rooms after a, a day's play at Edgbaston in the 2015 Ashes series, and um, I took a, a school friend with me who'd been drinking all day, and he managed <laughs> to make a fool of himself in the rooms, and um, and I had to try and escort him out and save face while talking to, to Darren Lehman. So um, it, it was a fun experience, but nothing, something that I uh, I still give him a bit of. Um, uh, rubbish about today, but uh, Tim, are you there? Oh, I'm there. I'm here. Sorry, I should say. Thanks for joining us, mate. We're uh, we're looking forward to having a chat with you about it, and um, and you obviously being a, a big Bombers supporter, and um, yep. I'm missing your footy at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I I, uh, I said, ma'am, I'm not sure my wife is. I think she's having uh, the time of her life. I've never watched less television and um, AFL 360 and all, all the stuff. I'm normally glued right into whether I'm. At home or on tour at this time of year, but yeah, certainly missing it. Um, missing watching the Bombers play, missing a bit of local footy, and um, I suppose the, the socialising that comes with it for a cricketer this time of year. Tim, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure for us to have the Australian cricket captain on. And first, I think from all um, Essendon people, congratulations on on what you and the team were able to do coming out of South Africa, and then. Um, bring the ashes back last year. I think it was it was fantastic, and to see your level of leadership um, come through that period and on the on the show, the the test that's been on, on Amazon's been quite incredible. Can I throw you back to 2010? It was I think when you you broke your finger. We're all watching yep. this up, up and coming potential star of the the cricket world come about, but it didn't happen as easily. And I'm interested to 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 understand how much of that experience. Um, enabled you to, well, gave you the toughness to get through what you had to get through after South Africa in 2018? Yeah, well, I think it's played a huge part in it. There's no doubt about that. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's um, it's sort of added toughness, but it's it certainly added um, a lot of perspective. Um, it added some empathy and, and things like that that I think coming through um, when I was sort of appointed as a, as a future Australian keeper, I think I took a lot of stuff for granted, I think whether that's just you know a young player being a young player and, and enjoying it and enjoying myself and and perhaps getting a little bit um, far, far far ahead of myself at times, but I thought um, you know right now, looking back, those two years I spent on the sidelines have um, have absolutely been the making of me. It um, allowed me to grow up a lot as a person. Um, allowed me to look sort of at myself a lot more. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I, I watched a lot of people, uh, read a lot of things. Uh, spoke to a lot of people and and really try to develop, um, you know, as particularly as a leader. And and at the time, I was only thinking that you know I was trying to sort of upskill those areas to so I could I could come back into the Tasmanian program and and make an impact there with some of our younger players. But um, 
you know, certainly turned right around and, and to be where I am now as the Australian captain, um, I don't think, well, I know I, would, I wouldn't have been able to do the job that I'm doing now without uh, having gone those gone through those few years. So um, whilst at the time it was difficult, I now look back at it um, as a real positive and, um, and, and something that's sort of allowed me to, to be where I am at the moment. And Tim, I mean, we all we are all the, the sum of our our experiences, and and you took over, um, you know, at a really difficult time um, as the Australian Test captain, and and I think that when when there's such, um, I guess, vitriol to to a group of people from external who ha- have no real knowledge of you as people, or um, yeah. and they they feel that, and and you as as the leader, I mean. Taking your mind back to, to that experience and, and what you were able to do to insulate the group, but also lead through such uncertainty. You, you remember, you know, like how you were feeling or the the um, messages that you were trying to convey to the people that you were about to lead about what was important and, and how we were yeah. going to get through to it together. Yeah, I do. Again, because I, I came from sort of outside of that group. Um, you know, I'd been playing for Australia as a, as a youngster and then hadn't played. I had 10 years between test matches. And um, and what I had noticed as a, as a first-class cricketer around Australia and as a fan of cricket in general is that, that um, it was pretty obvious to me that the Australian cricket team, with the way they were going about it at times, was getting on the nose of um, of our fans and, um, and of people who watch the game in this country. So, um, look, for me, it was about making sure that we started to drive the team culture again where people were thinking first about the team. I thought at times there was, and again, this was only from, I was, as you guys were, as an external person, it looked to me that um, we'd sort of started to have a, a team that was just had some little fractions in it and, and little groups and, and people were more worried about themselves and, um, you know, who was getting paid what and who had what sponsorship and who was the best player and who was what not rather than, um, you know, how how privileged and how important the Australian cricket team are as, as role models for, for people around this country and the history that, that goes with playing in that team and wearing that baggy, baggy green cap. And um, Yeah, so for me, South Africa was an extremely unfortunate moment, but again, uh, looking back, um, you know, a time to be able to reset and, and have a look at our values and, and why we want to play and why we do play and what's important to, to the Australian cricket team and, and how that looks to our, our fan and our public. So... Um, yeah, it was an opportunity, I guess, to reset. But I mean, my main message was that was, that, you know, that everything we do now is about um, is about making sure the first first decisions we make are about the team. Um, we spoke a little bit publicly about wanting to make Australians proud again um, and becoming better people. And um, you know, I think that's something we've we not only spoke about, but um, we've walked the walk in the last couple of years. And um, yeah, I've certainly been really proud to be involved in it. Tim and Xavier Campbell, thanks very much for, for joining us. It's a real privilege for us to get you on. You, you mentioned there the resetting of the values, and obviously uh, I've had a, I haven't watched the test yet, but I've had multiple people mention to me the part about you guys going about that process and that being brought to life in that documentary. Like, can you just talk to the process you put in place and the challenges and you know, I guess the triumphs that you felt that process helped you guys achieve? Yeah. Look, I think. Well, firstly, when when it um, kicked off, it was probably mainly JL um, coming in with with his experience, and and he had a really really clear um, 
way that he wanted things to run and he wanted people to behave. So he came in at the start. I still remember it. He sat us all down in Brisbane and, and basically gave us, you know, four or five core values, I think, that, that he believed in. And, and he was so strong on them for the first probably six months. Um, and it was probably the first time in a while we'd had something like written up in front of us. And, and again, we started to build that real... Uh, team first. This is this is how we behave, whether we're on the field, off the field. Rather, it'd become a, a kind of a very individual um, type thing, um, which which I, yeah, I think needed to change. So I think JL brought that in, uh, and then over the next sort of eighteen months, we've we've massaged that, and we've we've changed the wording of it, we changed the language, and um, basically, as you do, you guys would know, you sit around in a team, and, and we've come up with stuff that the team believes in, but. Um, it was certainly JL who set us on that path, um, and yeah, looking back again, it was a really, a really key moment. And, and again, it was able to switch the guys' thinking from you know what what do I want to do today to to what do I have to do and, and what does the team need from me. So um, you know, everywhere we go now, we've got our our values up on the room, and, we, and the other thing we do a lot better and a lot more is actually check on them and um, and pull each other up on them. So we have. Um, you know, sort of check-in meetings every every month or two when when we can get the whole group together and um, and sort of mark each other on on how we're going and and give some some stern feedback or or some really good praise for people that are um, towing the line and, and living our values. And um, another thing we spoke a lot about, and Jay was very strong about, is making sure that um, you know we're living them twenty four seven. So it's important that we take um, our standards back to our states, back to uh, training, back to everyday life, and. Um, as I said earlier in the thing, one of those things is about making Australian proud, and, and that's um, you know it's not just talking about it; it's making sure we're living it and um, living it away from the team is just as important. Tim, we have a, a lot of uh, young listeners listening to the program, young footballers, cricketers, uh, netballers who. Um, and what I'm intrigued with yourself is uh, your ability to stay in the moment. And, you know, you got your captaincy, the the keeper, and obviously batting, and, and you know, and you you can be doing, you can make a lot of runs, or you can take a great catch, or on, adversely, you can you can get out early, or you can drop a catch, or you can make a wrong decision setting the field. How do you get back to that moment where you have got these three massive roles and stay yeah. in the moment day in day out, particularly in that Ashes series where you know that that series would swing on. You know, a, a moment um, in in tests the whole across that whole series. Yeah, again, I think looking back to my early days as captain of Tasmania, that that wasn't a strength of mine. I was um, I I was reactive. I was I could get a bit punchy. Um, I was a bit of a my way or the highway type captain. And I, again, I think that was just experience. But I think now my uh, again the experience I've been through, the, having everything that I'd always dreamed of sort of taken away from me and then never thinking I'd getting it back and then to 10 years later sort of out of nowhere be back in the test team um, and I remember then that I just promised myself that I, I would do exactly that I would live it in the moment I would treat it every test match as my last um, and and then from that moment I became the captain and I thought well it's worked so well for me in the last however many tests so I'll, I'll just stick at it so um, yeah I, I just think you, you sort of mature and um, and learn a lot about yourself, particularly in difficult times. And um, as I said, I'm really lucky to have been given a second chance. I've been able to, to take stock, know where I needed to improve, go away and do it, and then um, and then get another chance. But yeah, in terms of staying in the moment, um, I think it has become 
a real strength of mine and then driving sort of, we had some really clear processes set up for how we thought we could be in. Um, the only way we were going to get off course from that was if we got caught up in the emotion of it, which can be difficult playing in England. It would be a bit like you guys going to, to Perth or Adelaide, um, you know, when the whole crowd's against you, you can sometimes just get caught up in that. So, um, you know, it's important for your leaders in particular to, to make sure that we're always on task. And, and cricket, you've got a little bit of time. You've got more time than you think if you just keep keep yourself calm and um, and keep yourself cool. And, um, again, it's probably one of the slight differences to footy. We've got that breather every every ball where you can just take stock and, and make some sensible decisions. And, um, and that, that's all we were trying to do, really. Yeah. And, and Tim, we were talking earlier on in the, the show about what Essendon means to us, and we've all had different experiences growing up. But, but for you, I mean, um, where did the, the Essendon connection um, come from and, and, and what is the, the club and your experience with, with AFL? What's it looked like and what's it been? Yeah, well, Essendon's uh, football club's actually quite a big part of, of my family's life. My uncle, uh, Robert Shaw, was... Um, I think brought to the club in about 1974 or 75, I think it was, um, as a as a 16 year old out of Sandy Bay. So, um, you know, everyone in my family, bar my brother, who can you believe it or not, he's a Collingwood supporter, and my dad, who is now a pretend Brisbane Lions supporter. He was a Fitzroy fan. Um, then he went to Brisbane. Uh, then they weren't any good, and then he jumped back on about the time they won those three flags in a row, and he hasn't left them. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, it certainly goes back to, to Uncle Rob and uh, we've sort of, as you do when you have people like that in your family, we've sort of followed him around um, to Adelaide and um, Fitzroy and places like that. But I think, um, you know, he was someone that our sort of whole family, I suppose, looked up to. Um, so when he was um, an Essendon player back in the day, my mum, my sister, my, my nan, all our family were, were always Essendon people and um, they still are at the moment. So... Um, there's not too many pain or sure uh, household dinners or, or lunches or Christmases where we're not talking something about the Essendon Football Club. So it's become you know, a really big part of all of our lives. Uh, Shorey was a great coach, uh, Tim. Spent a lot of time under Shorey. Have you ever copped a spray from Shorey? Because you can give one of the best <laughs> yeah, of all time. I do have one memory of it as a youngster when I was... I can't remember how old I was now, but it was Tasmania versus the Queensland Northern Territory at Bell Reeve in a State of Origin game. And, um, he got one of the trainers to take me and my brother out of the um, out of the change rooms before he gave his last speech. And, you know, it was at, down at um, Bell Reeve Oval, which then wasn't developed into a great stadium. So we were literally standing outside the door waiting to run out with the team and he absolutely let them have it for about five minutes. So I'd never heard language like it. So uh, it was certainly an eye-opener, but, um, yeah, I've heard... Some famous stories about um, about some of Rob's sprays, but I've been lucky enough to um, steer clear of them. Except occasionally, if you get on his nerves when he's when I was a youngster and he was he was trying to fish and not having much luck, you, you wanted to stay away from him then. Yeah, don't <laughs> worry. He's, um, he certainly could give a spray to a young fella or an old fella. He had three, four loves. He had his family. He had football, Manchester United, and the Australian cricket team. And I think between uh, all four of them, he pretty much there was no time left. So yeah, fishing no. was a love. But I've never seen a man as no, dimensioned well, he, about he staying up late at night watching sport. Now, on the, What's uh, that? On the test team, don't worry. Well, I think he's become a part-time selector of the Australian cricket team in the last sort of two years. So. <laughs> hey, you got a favourite Essendon moment, Tim? A favourite Essendon moment. 
Yeah, I, I didn't mind Hurdy when he put himself in the middle of that game and got the centre clearance and then went forward and next ball up, kicked the goal and gave the bloke a high five. Um, that's probably one of them. It's probably a bit embarrassing, Hurdy, but you were always my favourite player growing up. So um, that's one that I, I certainly remember. And um, up from that is obviously the 2000 grand final, uh, which, you know, it's obviously an Essendon fan, but, but Robert being involved is. Um, as an assistant coach as well, were two of uh, probably my favourite Essendon moments. Oh, well, thank you for saying that, Tim, because I've now gone up my, my three sons' estimations. We'd sit and watch the, uh, the test and watch yourself, and I'd try and explain to him you're an Essendon supporter, and I said, Dad, shut up, would you? So um, I'll certainly be using... I'll, be, I'll get that off the tape for later on, so thank you Beautiful. for that. No worries at all. <laughs> Well, Tim, thanks very much uh, for having a chat to the guys. Uh, it's great to get your perspective on cricket, but also your, your love of the Bombers. And, uh, well, well, we'll hopefully see you back out in the cricket field soon. Yeah, let's hope so. It looks like we, well, fingers crossed, we can get India out here and, um, and cricket will be in a lot better place. But, yeah, certainly looking forward to the footy season starting, give us something to do down here in our pre-season. And, uh, and thanks very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Tim Payne, the captain of the Australian Test uh, Cricket Team. Uh, great privilege, as uh, Hurdy said, to have him on the line on yeah. working through it. Uh, a bit of a, a short short break, but don't go anywhere because Dave Reid from the Footy Club will join us shortly on working through it. It's a footy club. If you keep it in that contents, that it's a, a football club, like a, well, it's been like a second home to you, you know, throughout my time and my journey in life. And uh, I don't see much of it, quite as much of it now as I once did, but you know, it was a place of mateship, and, you know, and a place where you could express yourself on the field and, uh, and play something that you really enjoyed. And that was what a legend he was, uh, Terry Danaher, absolutely red and black running through his veins. Before we get to our next guest, uh, Hurdy, just on Terry Danaher, can you explain to our listeners what it was like when he was back as an assistant coach at the club where he was pretty much doing as much training as the players there at one point when he was well and truly retired? He, he couldn't get enough of the action. Yeah, he was. Look, he's the hardest worker in football I've seen by a mile. And, and as a kid growing up, you know, my, my idols were um, Tim Watson and, and Terry Danaher, and used to, you know, wax and wane between which one I was in the backyard and kicking goals. And, and when I got to Essendon, um, you know, Tim obviously had the skills and, and was, you know, obviously captain of the club. Um, and then there was Terry, who I, I just couldn't believe how hard this guy would work. And not only when he complete training. But then he'd go and run up and down the grandstand for another hour away from the rest of the, the team. It was it was a phenomenal experience and, and a, just a super um, quality person who who led from the front. And you can you can see why Essendon was such a great team back in the eighties with the quality of people. But Terry was a was was a great player and he's a very good coach. But one of his weaknesses was he couldn't work out why everyone couldn't run for five hours and and wouldn't train quite as hard as he would. But um, I remember I know we've got to get to Dave. But I remember getting a, a letter from a supporter the day that um, I got given the number five. Basically, she, and this lady was explaining to me how how unworthy I was to have the great number five and that Terry Danaher was the greatest player to have ever played the game and that I should, I should hand it back to the club. 
So, um, yeah, but no, Terry was a, a favourite of mine and, and a, a really, truly great person. Oh, fantastic but, story. But um, we, we digress, uh, and we have, um, obviously, Dave, you might want to introduce uh, Dave. As, I don't think mm. Job and I, Job might have met him, but I haven't, so maybe it's over to you, Dave. Yeah, no, it's great to have Dave on. I mean, it's at, at a time where, you know, competition is so fierce in, in the AFL landscape, and physically, you know, all teams are probably trying a a very similar level, I'm sure, different different methods and things like that. But in terms of the capacity they've got in their training physically, it's um, all teams are very even. But when it comes to where we always felt there's an opportunity is around the mental space. And um, Dave Reed has joined us as our mental skills coach. He's been with the club over two years now. And Dave comes here, he's got a bit of a unique background. Um, he's a forensic psychologist. So he's, he comes from a different background, but it's great to have you on um Dave, welcome to the show, mate. It's been a busy, it's a busy few weeks for you, obviously. It has been, yeah, Dave. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me along, Dave. Um, just from myself, and nice to meet you, and congratulations. We're, we're hearing great things on what you're doing at the club from from Xavier, but also from a number of players. As a player, um, in my early days, we had psychologists and, and sports psychs, as they used to call them back then, and, and very much, um, if you went and saw the sports psych, you had a problem. You know, that was how it was viewed then. How do you balance your time now? Obviously, it's not the case now. How do you balance your time between high performance, which, you know, obviously we want to get our players to perform higher in a better way with their, their mental capacity, but also the wellness side of the, the mental skills side of things. Is there a, 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 is that hard to get a balance on or the framework you've set up enables you to do both? Uh, I think it is a bit of a challenge, if I'm being brutally honest, but um, particularly around uh, building rapport with, uh, with the people within the four walls and then building you know, their confidence that you'll be able to maintain confidentiality and provide clinical interventions that are appropriate. That's the real big um, challenge. Uh, the performance stuff is a lot more acceptable. Um, we, at the club, I've been, I feel very fortunate we've prioritised what we call the mental gym, which is just a dedicated part of the program now. It's been built up over the last couple of years and that's just something that everyone buys into. Um, all sessions are just part of like any other session, like a, a skills session or a, a session in, in the physical gym. Uh, the mental gym is just part of the program. So in terms of actually the mental skills for performance, you know, that's a dedicated part of the program and something the players are you know, increasingly open to training. Um, so the real delicate balance is actually how do you um, build relationships with players so that they feel comfortable um, and confident to come and see you, particularly around very delicate matters. Um, that's far more difficult. And what I find is I have to be very careful around my relationships, particularly with uh, people like Xavier and, and the coaches, to make sure that um, I'm not being seen as maybe too close uh, to those people because I think it's a, it's a very real uh, risk that I run. The players will find it difficult to approach me um, if they feel like um, it's not done in confidence. Um, so, yeah, it is a challenge. And, and Dave, it's, it's Joe Watson here. Nice, nice to meet you. And um, thanks for, as, as Herdy said, thank you for, um, for all that you're doing at the football club. I'm just, um, I'm keen to get your thoughts on, you know, like how a, a, an a AFL player at the Essendon Football Club compares to someone in, in society from the, the the way in which you would tr- treat or the, educate or help um, someone who's, um, you know, like at, at Essendon as opposed to an everyday person um, who's, who's working and, and the same sort of pressures that they might have. 
Uh, do you mean as in like what we're going through now, Job, or do you, what do you? Yeah, do you mean? in terms of uh, in terms of the the current climate, um, what yeah, what, okay. what are the sort of the, the tips and things like that you, you've been giving to the players? Yeah, well, I think I think the starting point is that there's a lot of similarities. Like we're all, uh, you know, a lot of our work roles have gone by the wayside now, and so we're all just human beings going through a pandemic. So there's a lot of similarities. I think that. Um, you know, the starting point in terms of making sense of the situation is that it's been very disorienting and overwhelming initially, um, as we all um, wrestled with a bunch of different things that were consistent. But whether you're a member of the general public um, or an AFL footballer or a coach, you know, the role changes at work and the financial uncertainty and um, all the things that we've had to wrestle with, partners losing jobs and uh, the constant influx of information. So in that way, there's been a lot of similarities and um, certainly I think that's, um, progressed over time with the pandemic. And now what we're seeing a lot of in both footballers, coaches and the general public is that there's this um, this toll that's starting to take effect of being confined to our houses for an extended period of time where there's this general malaise and kind of mental fog and fluctuating motivation that I think is hitting everybody and not just footballers. Um, the thing that's probably a bit different with footballers is that um, they're really starting to miss the intensity of competing. Um, and um, so they're really looking forward to getting some clarity about about what the season looks like because that's probably a unique part of their everyday life that they actually compete um, very regularly and um, the intensity of that really can't be replicated. Um, so the impact is, you know, I think the emotional roller coaster that everyone's been on and all of us on this call, I think, are part of that around feeling stressed or exhausted or irritable or um, having disturbed sleep or feeling anxiety, that stuff's actually quite similar. Um, and um, would be very similar to what we've been talking about with the players as well. Dave, I think it's a fantastic um, way of talking about what's going on at the moment because, uh, you know, you, you are at home with either your loved ones on your own or trying to work kids around, and the, the, thing, the ability to get irritable is, um, except for myself, obviously, um, happening um, uh, <laughs> not much at all. But just in terms of... And there's two parts of the question. Firstly, we see AFL footballers, we see coaches, we see um, people in the AFL industry having issues outside of football, and it gets highly, it gets um, put in the news, and obviously it's it, it's it's clickbait. People want to read about it if a player has a problem. Um, take aside the fact that it may be less or more so within society that the fact that football is a you know high profile, it gets publicised more. What parts of the, the game, whether inside a football club or the whole bubble, um, cause, cause this effect to happen? Is, is it a more pressure environment than a normal job? And, and are we seeing more and more people in the football industry having problems with, with mental health or mental wellness? Or is it just something that's being highlighted more because you know, it's, it's high profile and it's a better story? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think it's something that I, I don't want to um, just uh, say something quite simple. I think it's actually very complex. Um, and I think the first thing in terms of comparing the people within the footy industry or professional sports and people who are in the general public is, or certainly something that I've learned through this period, is that our players are actually very resilient. And as professional athletes, you know, what I've realised is they do a lot of work preparing themselves for managing stress and distractions. And I don't really want to say that they do more of, uh, they experience more stress than people in the general public, because I'm not sure that that's right. I'm not sure if we could actually say 
to be honest, because um, some people find being a professional athlete exceptionally stressful and others um, find it a very manageable level of stress. And then similarly with the general public, some people find life exceptionally stressful and others have moments of stress, but otherwise it's manageable. So I kind of don't want to say that I have the answer to that necessarily, but what I would say is that um, you know, we, we do things in the club that I think have prepared them well for this period. You know, we, we regularly discuss with, you know, what is a really young cohort of men, you know, things like emotional exposure and sitting with uncertainty. And, you know, they sit with difficult emotions like anxiety and uncertainty on a weekly basis. And, um, you know, we do a lot of stuff around practicing, observing their thinking and identifying helpful and unhelpful thoughts. And, um, you know, so they're actually quite good at managing uncertainty. And that's one of the things that I would kind of say. But I also don't want to say that none of our players aren't finding this period challenging. It's absolutely not the case. But um, I do think that a lot of the mental skills and practices that we've been putting in place has actually helped uh, a lot of them through this period. Um, in terms of the broader part of your question um, around why... I think it was kind of talking about why some people sort of maybe struggle with moving out of this into sort of transitioning into life after yeah. football. Is that what you kind yeah. of meant? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, um, again, I think it's a really complex issue. I think it's an awesome talking point for people to be considering, particularly people involved in the industry. And I think that this is an issue for professional sport. We know that now across the globe. Uh, but I also think it speaks to a generational issue more broadly, and I think the biggest challenge we're facing currently is one of identity, um, and specifically identity formation. And I think prior to this pandemic, you know, the mental health outcomes in Australia were pretty concerning. You know, the rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, you know, they were at record highs and we were a very addicted and obese and, you know, in-debt generation. Um, and I think mm. that um, that um, is not a sport-specific issue, but I think that there is a particular lens that should be applied to professional sport and I think that um, all I can sort of speak to is what we try and do at Essendon you know one of, one of the biggest um, kind of mottos we have is that footy is what you do it's not who you are and so we give a lot of thought to trying to create an environment where identity is able to be developed appropriately and and that's actually a really big challenge you know we've got people like your son you know still teenagers coming through the club and you know, in a competitive industry, in a hostile environment like AFL footy, how do we actually move towards an environment um, of true sort of psychological safety where relationships are so deep they can be tolerated honestly and we can share things without judgment? And, we, you know, in high-performance environments, how do we, you know, how do we respond when people make mistakes or errors, particularly skill errors, which is really frustrating at times? Um, so first of all, I'd say in terms of trying to answer the question, I think we need to address what sort of environments do we want for our people uh, and what sort of environments help identities form in a really healthy way. And I think that is a bigger issue that, that speaks to school environments and work environments and home environments. Um, but um, fundamentally and more broadly, I think the starting point for these problems um, sits with something a bit bigger. And I think that is a bit of a, a deeper sense of, or a yearning, I guess, for meaning and a craving for, a higher quality of lived experience. And I think that's at the crux of what we're seeing with these difficulties trans, transitioning into other areas of your life or another phase of your life. So uh, one of the things we talk a lot about at, at Essendon is purpose. And, you know, we go through an activity with all of our players, coaches and staff. And, um, you know, when I say that I feel really lucky to work at Essendon, it's, it's for that very reason. Like when we do something with the players, we end up doing it with the whole um, organisation uh, a lot of the time, which is, uh, I think a really unique thing, but 
we go through an activity which helps them answer, you know, the question of, you know, what their purpose is and what are the guiding principles in their life. And I just think um, that's not an AFL thing. It's just a, a huge part of identity development. Um, and then we, the natural extension of that is, so how does what you do help you express your purpose? So whether it's you guys hosting a podcast or whether it's Xavier in his role or whether it's a footballer um, trying to get a, you know, a touch on the wing, you know, how does what you're doing help you express your unique purpose? And um, this is something that I've, something that I've sort of tackled at both Essendon, but also in other franchises. And it's always the same, you know, um, people are really invested in creating environments where we give people time and space to get that clarity. And my fear is at the moment that we actually don't do that enough in our schools and at home. Um, and so we have a difficulty, a problem uh, with the development of identity in our people. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that we need to give a lot more consideration to going forward. Dave, I just actually just sent the boys <clears throat> that article, that uh, Harvard Business Review article, what happens when your career becomes your whole identity. You know, that article we mm, took the leadership yeah. group through um, – which was really, it was a relatively straightforward article. It was a, it was a great article. It's so probably a good one for them to, to have a look at and based on the discussion we've just been having now, but it's clearly been something that's been very topical. And I would love to think that when, when we look at how football looks into the future, and it may well be that you know, if, if there is small lists, if there is less contact hours at the club, you know, I would love to see greater opportunity and emphasis put on positioning the players to get broader experiences outside the football club. Not, not mandating it. You don't want to mandate things, but just short of mandating, just to allow them to get that, that broader perspective, to allow them to understand how other markets and industries work, to feel valued in a different way, to not just be always caught up in just, you know, Job the footballer or James the footballer, which, you know, for these two, having... You know, knowing them closely for a long time, like they, they were, the football was never it was never just about football for them, and clearly, then the transition becomes easier after football, for example. I think that when we do resume, I think it's going to be an awesome opportunity to accelerate that discussion. You know, what have people learned over this period about um, about themselves, about their relationship with their craft, which is footy, um, and what have they learned about you know why they actually exist, like what's the purpose of doing this, why are we bothering? Um, and I think to me that actually is the starting point for a whole host of discussions around how we structure our program, um, how we help people develop over their time at the club, particularly these people who are going to be there for a long period of time. Um, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to accelerate a lot of those discussions when we when we resume. Dave, I'm just um, curious to to get your take on when with, with the explosion of, um, of social media and sharing and things like that. As as the younger guys who have grown up in the environment where it is normal to share experiences with a with a public forum, have you noticed that because it, it transitions very quickly from you sharing everything that you've done as a teenager to then being that that is then turned into exposure uh, once you you become an AFL player um, and how the the young guys are able to balance that with okay now all this sharing that I and openness that I had is now giving me exposure for the opportunity for negativity that comes in and that's having an adverse um, impact on my experiences as an AFL player. Is there, 
Is that something that you've noticed with the guys as, as there's been that transition to a lot more openness and sharing of, of content um, of people's lives as they're, as they're sort of growing through that um, teenage years? Yeah, I think it's a, um, it's a, it's a big issue and I think it's it, it also, I mean, talking broadly about phones, I think it also um, expands to things like access to things that we maybe didn't have as... Um, teenagers ourselves growing up around access to things like gambling sites and um, information in general. And um, But I think definitely it's another source of stress at the moment and it's a huge distraction for a lot of people. And I think we've um, kind of built a bit of a rod for our own back in many ways with um, a lot of players being told that you know they are their own brand and so they need to be very careful about um, how they present themselves um, on social media to the external world and, and potentially the, the benefits of doing that. Um, but I think the pitfalls of that are very um, clear for anyone who's involved in it in terms of the instant feedback that you receive straight after the game. And, um, you know, I went to an NBA game in October of last year and halfway through a game over there, every single player and coach was on their phone um, halfway through a game, through an NBA game. And um, and you, you get, you know, a sudden realisation that, yeah, the feedback is now instant. Um, and when you link it to how gratification works and how we're looking for some sort of recognition or um, something in terms of feedback, uh, you see how it can be a slippery slope both ways. We can overvalue that feedback and we can also, um, we can actually overreact to it very quickly. So I think it's a really tight balance and I think that um, we need to shift the narrative around branding um, and around how open we expect our athletes to be but also tempering that with what are the added stresses that come with this? And while we want our athletes to be open, do we want someone to be able to uh, reply to their Instagram feed very personally and immediately? Um, or do we need to protect some of the players um, and high-profile people from that? I think it's a really broad discussion, and it's, it's one that's not going away. It's one that we have to educate people on, and um, it's probably a bit of an individual thing as well. Some people are more open to it, and others would prefer it to be closed. Um, so, yeah, really interesting one. I'm not sure if that's answered your question or not. Dave, uh, we're being uh, wound up, not because you're absolutely fascinating, and this could talk for hours, but I think um, we would be here for hours if we kept going. I think it's thoroughly interesting. One question you, you may or may not be able to answer, it's about the the team. I've always thought that to be a, an elite team, you physically have to be at the right age, done the right amount of work. Your game plan has to come together and you've had the coaches enough time to put that game plan together. You talk about the, the mental gym, I think. That's what you have referred to later. How far away is this team from being mentally ready to be elite, if that if that makes sense? And don't feel like you, you have to answer it, but it would um, be great to know from a supporter's point of view, are we, are we close to being mentally elite or do we have to go through a bit more of uh, to get there? Uh, what I would say is that they're definitely invested um, in um, working on their mental game. And I think that there is a true investment that's taken place. And I think that um, John Worsfold and Ben Rutten, it's, um, it's not lip service. Uh, they're, they're genuinely invested in it as well. So um, certainly um, our players are showing great growth in terms of their ability to develop self-awareness. Uh, so they do a lot of deep diving into thoughts and emotions and understanding, you know, how to unlock behaviour. Um, and they're using the mental skills that we're actually giving to them. Uh, but it's all an offering. It's not something that we impose. So it's really an experimental kind of, um, yeah, offering. Uh, what I would say is that people are getting clearer every day about how they want to play the game. 
and they're getting clear about how they can support their teammates. The on-field connection is um, something that we take very seriously and, and the players um, are tested on it. So how can they actually help their teammates to be at their best um, when they're out there in that hostile environment? I'm seeing some great growth in that area, whether or not... Um, I, I mean, I don't know exactly where it sits in, in relation to other people um, that we're competing against. I really have no um, oversight of that. Um, but what I can say is that we're making great uh, progress in that area and, um, and there's an appetite to keep doing the work. And I believe that's the key is if there's no appetite to do it, um, you're basically hoping. Um, so, yeah, from what I'm seeing, it's really positive. I'm, I can't give you a definitive answer, James, but it's moving the right way, that's for sure. Thank you. Dave, thanks very much for joining us, mate. It's great to have you on the program. Um, it's a great platform for us all, and that's what was established to communicate with the members, provide some insights, talk about the current you know, landscape that we're all dealing with. And I'm sure for many, they will have taken insight, in their, even just that they can relate to their own personal lives, mate. So thanks very much for coming on the program. No problem. Well, well we've been waiting for that for a long time to chat to Dave Xavier, and that was absolutely worth the wait. That was uh, was fa- absolutely fascinating. There's uh, no question about that. I'm sure Essendon fans and members would have got a lot out of that, just life lessons as much as uh, anything else. Uh, Jack Jones, what, what, talk about legends. What a legend he is to Essendon. Unfortunately, uh, he lost his life uh, this year, but uh, he's still going to have an indelible, indelible mark on the football club, and here he is talking about what Essendon means to him. You can't say that you can be on ready one eye and blank in the other. I'm like, you know, border in between the bricks at, at Essendon Football Club. Jack Jones, as I said, an absolute legend of the football club. It is time for the Coles Mighty Moment. Now, this one is a little bit different. It's not something that happened on the field. It was something that happened off the field. To explain a little bit more, here is Paul Salmon. Congratulations to the Essendon Footy Club for coming through what is a pretty... Well, it was a very difficult period and come through so galvanised and so together. It's exciting to see all these passionate people um, determined to get behind the boys, behind the club and, um, you know, win or lost now moving forward. It's about really just being a part of one big group and family that um, is heading in a really exciting one direction and I, think, I know the boys would appreciate it very much. It's a big thing to have your fans behind you. So well done, guys. So that was when Essendon marched to the G, the, the players marched to the G in that game against Melbourne. Now, I'm going to start with you, Job. Um, I know you weren't playing that day, but I'm sure that it resonated with you about just how big and powerful that moment was for the football club. Yeah, it certainly was, Whitey. I mean, I was um, down at um, I was down at the farm, actually, and... Um, I think uh, I watched the game from there and um, just to see, um, you know, like the, the level of support that um, we had and um, and how passionate people were and that they uh, turned up and were walking along the bridge to the game and still cheering and united and um, knowing that they were facing, you know, like a whole season that was going to be, um, you know, there was, there was going to be a really tough season to be a supporter of a football club. But they, these people who came out, who had supported the players um, through thick and thin and, and were going to continue to do so. So as I think it's, for me, it was, it's one of the um, the great uh, shots that I have instilled in my memory about um, the Essendon Football Club and its people. They beat Melbourne that day at the MCG, certainly against all odds. I'm not sure whether I should ask you this question, Job, or, or maybe Xavier, because you were very much part of the football club that day. Was it a bit of a game changer um, in the sense that 
players that may have been disillusioned with the club, fans that may have been disillusioned with the club, really sort of thought, no, nah, this is Essendon and this is still something that means a hell of a lot to me. There seemed to be something sort of intangible about the, the momentum that that moment brought to the club. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sort of taking myself back to that moment. Just after that game, I remember having lunch with uh, Kyle Hooker. Obviously, Hooks here was suspended. And um, I remember it was just distinct for me how significant the impact was on him. He said, wow, what about the fans? Um, what about how many? So were the, so many fans were behind it. Look, did you see the pictures? Like, he was just amazed by it. And then he was, you know, the, the other part was, what about the young players? That was just so exciting to see them. And I think that was a real, a really important moment for us. I know, like, for me personally, like I said, it had been such a challenging few months, even just to get to the season. Like, we had to overcome so many obstacles just to, and it sort of felt like that period of time and trying to work through top-up players and everything else like that was just so difficult and to finally get to a season was a relief in itself. But then to see the the outpouring of support that day, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, the membership physically, they, they come to games, they they pay significant money to get behind their team. But if, like, there's this other intangible piece around emotion that they provide the emotional support for the players, obviously, you know, for the administrators. You know, I, I just feel like the Essendon, you know, being an Essendon supporter my life, entire life, having spent so much time with Essendon people, um, they're the most loyal supporters you could ever find, I'm sure. Like, there's no doubt about that. But they also drive accountability with their people as well. You know, they're, they're demanding, they want to be successful, and and that's that's good and that's fair and that's entirely understandable. And um, you know, that day was that day was a really important moment in our history. It was disappointing we're in that position, but in terms of that and what it meant for us, that was huge that day. All right. Uh, let's uh, continue this flavour about uh, what Essendon means to so many of uh, the Bomber legends, and Simon Madden certainly fits into that category. And I play 820, which means 819 players played before me. And I think at that time about uh, uh, 230 had played after me. I said, and what you learn is that we're all uh, we're all custodians of this great club. We're all just passing through. Okay, so that is uh, Simon Madden's just feelings about uh, being an Essendon man. Now, this week's uh, fan recall winner of the week was Julian Spears. So, congratulations, uh, calling that uh, Darcy Parish goal. You want to hear how he did it? Well, this is how he did it. Bug with the ball at half back. Melbourne down by six. Trying to capitalise here in the fourth to kick towards. He's edged out of it. The experience from Kelly. Kelly with a handball. Makes his way to Fantasia. We know he knows how to use it. That is a beautiful kick to Goddard. Goddard can turn and go here. He's got Saharakis. We know he loves a big stage. He gives it off. Parrish to second game of Parrish. 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 Goodness me. Darcy Parrish has kicked his first goal in AFL footy. In his second game. It is a game sealer. Unbelievable from the Bombers. Give me your thoughts, Doug. I cannot believe it. Unbelievable. You called it well. The bomber is Zaharakis. He gives it up to Parrish. He's kicked the goal. That should be it. Look at what it means to him. Look at what it means to the club. Unbelievable. That, that might be a clubhouse leader. Jules put a lot into that one, a lot of emotion, and had a very raspy voice at the start of that. I wonder how many practice goes he had before he had one that he was happy with, Ernie. <laughs> 
He's passionate, there's no doubt. No doubt, passionate <laughs> and you're accurate. I think that's the secret to good uh, commentary, isn't it? But uh, no, definitely the most passionate of the ones we've had so far. I think you're right, he's right up the top. So, so I'd, that... love to hear Joe, I'd love to hear Joe have a crack at something like that, Xavier. Yes. Um, I think next week we could oh, throw yeah, Joe a, like a line and, um, <laughs> and let, him, let him go with a, one of his own moments or one of his favourite moments. It'd be fantastic to hear. What do you think, Joe? I might commentate a, um, a footy trip moment. If you could, um, if you'd like to give me a video version of a footy trip moment, Ernie, and I can give some some commentary to it, like a pool deck scenario or something like that. Well, I've got one of you. Do you want me to share it with the public? I'm not sure probably, he did do, probably, but anyway, probably not. There's a special one. dance you used to do on those trips. Move on, would you? All right, I might take over here just to make sure that uh, to remind everyone to jump on the website this week. Uh, the fans have a chance to recall. Kale Hooker's match winner against Hawthorne. Now, fortunately for Kale, it's not him chasing Lance Franklin down the members' wing at the MCG. It's actually him uh, kicking a ceiling goal against the Hawks. So jump on the website and have a go at uh, calling that one. Uh, before we go through a little bit more about what Essendon means to not only um, the guys that are a part of this show, but also the fans and the members, this is what Mark Harvey thinks Essendon means to him. define me as much as your family can define you Essendon's define me which I find fascinating in many ways that's the reality of what's transpired in my involvement with Essendon it's, it's defined who I am now always be indebted to the club for, for, for what it is and what it's done and what it continues to do a massive part of my life and uh, it's taught me a lot of things Mark Harvey, certainly one of my favourites when it comes to Essendon. Now, Xavier, before you take over for the last uh, bit of the show, I know that uh, there's plenty you want to talk about. We've actually got some uh, some fans and some members that have put in uh, their um, views on, on what Essendon means to them. So I've got three to read out, and some of these are really good, and they all get a Coles voucher, uh, which is very handy. So the club will be um, getting in touch with you all. Firstly, it is Danielle on Missing Footy, and it reads, I didn't spend nearly as much time watching football last season, and it's only now that I realise how much I actually miss cuddling up in the cold at the MCG, keeping warm by unconsciously shaking my legs and vocalising my frustrations, letting those moments at the game dictate my thoughts, my daydreams, my conversations for next week. I know winter and home just won't be the same this year. We all waited out together and uh, it'll feel that much sweeter when we're all back at the MCG. So that's from Danielle. That's very well written. So is this one from Ashley on uh, Mark McCurry's goal in the famous 1993 preliminary final. With the benefit of hindsight, every time I watch McCurry's goal, despite knowing every piece of it, every piece of commentary, every noise from the crowd, every blip on the worn-out old videotape, I knew it was the moment our players believed that they would win. The moment, my moment. It will live with me forever. Sure, there have been other special moments in the years that have followed, but none that have matched that. So that's from Ashley. And another one here from Nick, who is a Scottish immigrant. And it reads, As Essendon got on top, I just remember this feeling of pure joy back in 1988, his first game he went to. When each goal that rained down, we stopped collecting cans and soaked it up. The ball kept going through with ease from every part of the ground. Fans shook the stands, hurtling chips and beer into the air. It was absolutely brilliant. The crowd was yelling, fish, fish, fish. 
I said to Angus, who's that? And he said, that's Paul Salmon. He kicked seven goals that day as the Bombers won easily. So that's from Nick Gamble, uh, that game in round one of 1988 against North Melbourne. So there's just a bit of a snapshot, Xavier, from the Essendon fans, the Essendon members. Those three, Danielle, Ashley, and also Nick, will all get some vouchers thanks to Coles to help get everyone through a difficult time as I throw back to you guys. Yeah, thanks, Whitey. It's great to hear that, that the passion and uniqueness of those stories from the fans. I guess I'm, I'm interested to sort of throw to both Job and to James about what the what do the ZS and the membership mean to them? That they sort of come from a unique perspective, having spent almost 25 years collectively at the football club between them. You know, what what does the Essendon fan mean to them? The Essendon member mean to them? Yeah, well, I think for me, Xavier, it's it's the loyalty. You know, like in and the the care that um, I've experienced through my journey, and and obviously had um, you know dad and, and his time through through football, and and you know he was he was much loved by a lot of Essendon people, you know, and and I was able to be displayed the same level of care for and love and and that's what i experienced and um you know i've, I've had got some great relationships um through my time at, at essendon and um you know i remember i had the same um uh, you know coterie members and things like that that had supported me and a group of um you know the bombardiers who were a group of sort of elderly females um, who I used to have dinner with every year and catch up with and talk footy. And, and I could see, you know, like they'd been supporting the club for, you know, 50, 60 years and the level of passion that they had for, for the football club. And, um, you know, you, you forget sometimes how much football means to people and, and how um, how much people really love and care about the footy and, and the Essen Football Club and, and, you know, how difficult it must be for them to not be able to be there and, and watch the games at the moment. Yeah, look, I think James and my experience have been very similar in terms of, you know, family and, and, and what the football club meant. And watching football, watching Essendon from afar as a kid, you know, going to games, but also watching on TV, you, you see it as a bit of an institution. You see the players, the grandstand, you see the VFL, you see the AFL. But it's not until you become a player um, who was a supporter that you realise how, how important those members and supporters are for the players. Um, I, I still remember my first, you know, 10, 15 games feeling like a supporter out there on the ground and, um, you know, went from one one Saturday afternoon standing with my auntie and, and, and her, her family, you know, watching the, the game of football to the next Saturday afternoon running out in front of the same crowd and, and you do feel very, very privileged. But the members are the uh, members and supporters. I think you know. Obviously, the members pay, but to put them all into into one group, the supporters of Eston Football Club, for the players, for the ex-players, um, are the most loyal group of people, and 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 they do stick by you, as as we know, Job. I mean, whether it's the good times or the bad times, I think um, Eston supporters have never disappeared, or Eston members have never disappeared, and and that's why you know everyone at Essendon is now starting to come together because they want some success to repay the members and supporters for their years of loyalty. For a long time, we had you know, huge success. And I think um, as, as the club's trying to do Xavier and doing very well with the, the coaches and the players, trying to reward this membership group and this supporter group for, for a great sense of loyalty with a, a team they can be proud of on the ground. And, and it's getting very close to, to being that. Yeah, I think Hurdy for, for me as well is the, it, it's the joy that you provided um, for people. You know, like the because there is so much passion and love for the football club. Um, you know, being able to contribute 
in a in some way through you know playing the amount of joy that you're able to provide people that's that's the thing that i think there is something really that i look back on as as a really special and and incredibly grateful that i had that opportunity to provide that level of joy to to others um and um and that's sort of i think the beauty of, of professional sports and, and what they can do for people what would you last question because we're obviously we're running over time but like your greatest test in the moment could be as a player, could be as a as a you know as a fan before that, or watching your father. I know for me, like I I never forget when I was only three or four and four, I think I was when Leon Baker ran into that goal in '84, and I still remember seeing on my dad's lap threw me up, and that was probably my first real lesson in memory, and still probably my greatest for so many reasons. Like for each of you, what would your favourite moment be? Um, I have to probably be quite cliched and say that that was my favourite moment, Xavier. I, I remember staying at my grandfather's farm up in Romsey with my grandparents and my mum and my, my sisters and my dad and we drove to the, the grand, uh, 84 grand final day and uh, just sitting there with my dad and my uncle, I think it was, and, and watching the game and, and just the drive back to Romsey, the, my grandfather's farm, it was the, one of the happiest moments of my life to have seen Eston win a grand final. Um, to watch that last quarter, it was um, that that when you think back about the the real memories, as good as playing was, and all the, all the things that, but that was as as good a football memory as I've ever had, and it was just I think incredible for all Essendon supporters who remember it. Um, the years, 19 years of of no premiership glory to to win that game was uh, was something very 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 special. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's a little bit the same, you know, like I loved playing and, and playing, um, you know, is something that is, you know, it's a wonderful thing. But for me, my my favourite memories are watching dad play, you know, like and going to the footy and watching dad dad play. Um, that was what I enjoyed and maybe because, you know, I was, a, I was a kid and life was simpler and it was just pure joy. There wasn't the, the everything else that happened when you become a player and, and what you're trying to do. But um, you know, for my, uh, for me, it was the the simple joy of of going and going to the footy each week and, and being able to watch Dad play, and and that was that is my fondest memory of of my time at Essendon. Fantastic, great memories, uh, guys. And uh, I'm actually going to read out this text. We haven't had a chance to go through texts or take calls today. We've d- done the show a little bit differently today, but there is a great text that has come through that we can we can do this live on air. Uh, what does Essendon mean to me? Bombers are my escape from the fast-paced world we live in. It's a stress release and a way to socialise, whether it's through social media or at games. Thank you for the memories, uh, good and bad. And it's one of those things, Xavier, isn't it? When you, when you think about it, it is that escape from the reality and, and the reality we're living at the moment. We probably need football more than ever. Yeah, I think that's right, Whitey. And, and it's not going to be football as we know it, unfortunately, over the next few months. And, you know, I'd love to think there's an opportunity. And we heard from Martin Bacall last week talk about the fact that crowds could potentially be back for the back part of the season. I just hope that's the case because I just would love for the fans of Essendon and of every other club to get that opportunity because we know how much it means to them. Um, but um, just seeing football come back, you know, it felt a little bit weird round one without the crowds and else like that. I just don't think it'll feel as weird round two without the crowds because we just have missed the game and we all have missed it so much. So, you know, at least we're still seeing some, um, seeing uh, we're in the backward stretch now. As we wrap it up, Xavier, I know we are running a bit over time, but we have had quite a few questions over the last couple of weeks from Essendon fans wanting to know the latest on the Irish players. Um, 
Connor McKenna is yeah. one that obviously stands out because of how, how good he is about being able to get back into the country and participate in whatever this preseason is going to be. Have you got an update for fans on that situation? Yeah, it's going to depend on their visa type. And uh, for Connor, that will be fine. And I, you know, I expect, I think Connor's actually on a flight. Uh, if it's not tonight, it's tomorrow night. Um, it's very shortly to come back. And obviously, he's going to have to, to manage the period of quarantine as per the, the guidelines that sits right now. But for our, our other two Irish boys, we're still working through that with the AFL and with government now. But um, yeah, hopefully, that provides some clarity for our fans. Yeah, I thought I'd ask that one because it has come through quite a bit over the last couple of weeks and we haven't had a chance mm. to, to ask the question. Uh, James Heard, Joe Watson, Xavier Campbell, thank you very much for your involvement again. And I've got a feeling next week we might be talking a little bit more footy because. Uh, I reckon it's getting a bit closer. We might sort of try and amp that up on the show as well. Thanks for your time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. And for all Essendon fans out there, thank you for your continued support. It's great to see so many text messages and emails and tweets coming through uh, that you're enjoying the show. Um, it's great to listen to the guys in action, um, even though it's just having a chat. It's, uh, it's fantastic to have the involvement of uh, two legends of the Essendon Football Club and also the CEO. We'll catch you next week. 